Sharing the faith used to make people mad because it challenged their own beliefs. But today, it actually makes a lot of people yawn because they don't have strong beliefs about anything. So just how do you evangelize the indifferent? podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Linger, and welcoming to the show, Matt Nelson, who's the assistant director of the Word on Fire Institute. He's also the author of Just Whatever, How to Help the Spiritually Indifferent Find Beliefs That Really Matter. Welcome to the show, Matt. So glad to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Chloe. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Yeah, absolutely. So when Catholic Answers sent over this book, I had to just comment first on the cover. It's fantastic. So just a sneak peek for listeners to go check it out. (laughs) (laughs) It's fitting that a Canadian author would have the cover it has because I was informed once the cover was settled upon that it's the first Catholic Answers booklet ever to have a marijuana leaf on it. <laughs> and I'm not sure if you're not sure if you're familiar with current events in Canada, but marijuana was legalized this week, so anyways, I'm not I'm not proud of that, but just I just a, thought I'd throw that in there. Just a fun fact. <laughs> Exactly. That's awesome. Now, I'm excited to talk about today's topic. So we're gonna be talking about spiritual indifferentism. And this is something that I ran across in my time in college, which wasn't too long ago. And we're going to be talking about spiritual indifferentism, relativism, and all the different isms that seem to be prevalent in today's culture. So we'll start off by this. Today's world offers us a lot of opportunities to be self-sufficient. And coming from like the American perspective, it's something where like individualism is something that's held as an American value. And G.K. Chesterton writes, complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. So Matt, can you talk a little bit about how can Catholics live in a world that seems to just thrive in self-sufficiency? Yeah, you know, when I was trying to decide how I was going to approach writing this book, I was just doing some research before I had really settled on uh, a structure or what we sometimes call a red thread, which is sort of like that argument you're going to make through the entire course of the book. And I was watching a talk that Robert Cardinal Sarah had given. I believe it was a prayer breakfast of some kind in the United States. But Cardinal Seurat pointed out this problem of radical self-sufficiency that seems to exist in our modern culture, this this belief that we are enough in the sense that there is no need to look outside of ourselves for any ultimate authority. That sort of attitude is just so obvious today in this age of relativism. And so, you know, as Catholics, we run into a challenge in this way because so many people in our lives, whether it's in our family, our friends, or at work, or at school, you know, so many people have kind of bought into this whole myth of self-sufficiency. Now, not to say that we don't have our own free agency, not to say that we can't make choices for ourselves and that we should be autonomous to an extent, but there's, it's just, a, it's this radicalized self-sufficiency that's so prevalent. And what has added to the problem, along with these philosophical underpinnings like relativism, is this really quick increase in technological capabilities. And the best example of that is smartphones. We have these smartphones we carry around with us all the time. And I think like this kind of technology came on the scene so fast, we weren't really sure how to how to really work with it responsibly. What the smartphones offer us is it really offers us an opportunity to have so much of our head work done for us. So like we used to have to learn how to cultivate our memory so we could remember important details about reality, but now we've got Google or Wikipedia right at our fingertips, you know, or we used to have to like take time in our day to go down to the bank, see a bank teller and have our check deposited in the, in our bank account. Now we can just snap a picture of a check that we have 
you know, as soon as we receive it and it goes right into our, our bank account. So like so much is done for us now today that we have this sort of false sense of almost like omnipotence that we can do anything. We're all powerful. And so, you know, that's a challenge because this is the culture we live in. But as Catholics, I think our first principle is always we were loved into existence. Like this life is completely a gift. And not just that we were loved into existence, but every second that we exist, that's because God is choosing to hold us into existence, meaning that without God, we're nothing. And so I think that's the the key, I think, to keep it really simple for us Catholics is always to remember that this life, our very existence is a gift. And without God, we're nothing. That's great. No, it's a great way to sum it up. When I think about self-sufficiency, I think about all the things that we miss out on when we tap into this kind of autonomous, like, well, I, I can do whatever I want. You know, I have a smartphone. I'm guilty of all the things that you mentioned. I'm guilty of Googling things instead of remembering them. I just, before we started talking, snapped a picture of a check um, and sent it into my bank for a deposit. But I think it's like the things that we're missing out on is community because we're living a life as islands and, you know, thinking that we don't need anybody. I mean, community is so important to the Catholic life, but also we're missing out on this relationship with God because if we think that we've reached perfection or we have the ability to reach perfection by ourselves, that really just puts us in this kind of prideful position of like, well, you know, I don't need anybody or I can do this on my own. I'm just missing out on that key important relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, whose research has been really interesting is Dr. Jean Twenge. She's a psychologist out of San Diego State University. You know, Bishop Barron actually did a, a really good commentary on YouTube on this book that came out, which was basically a collection of the latest research, research that she had done on the generation of, of youth that she calls the iGen. And the iGen are essentially, um, if I remember correctly, it's really the generation born from about 1995 and on. Mm-hmm. These are people who have never known life without the internet or smartphones. And she talks about just what psychological research has revealed that's unique about this particular generation. And I mean, these kids are, are in, you know, for lack of better word, and many of them are adults now, for lack of better words, they're not growing up, you know, and part of it is because all they need is in that phone or that iPad or tablet or or whatever. So they're spending all this time, you know, in their room interacting with people. They don't even need to get out. They're not getting their, uh, licenses is you know at 16 years old like we used to rush as soon as we were 16 to get our licenses and there's things they're putting off because they're all they're trapped in this cramped world of the iphone now i'm not against technology but i just think that there are certain repercussions that come from not knowing how to responsibly use these things and a big result of that has been this false sense of self-sufficiency that we can just do it all with our technology and therefore we have no other need for anyone else outside of ourselves. One of the kind of side effects or results of having this incredible self-sufficiency or this sense of self-sufficiency is what leads to indifferentism, whether that comes you know, mm-hmm. on a variety of different things, but especially what you dig into in this book so well is spiritual indifferentism or just being indifferent to religion mm-hmm. as a whole. And you talk about relativism and essentially that's telling us, you know, your truth is your truth and, and my truth is my truth and everyone can kind of have their own set of moral codes. Before we get started into that conversation, can we define our terms? Can you define religious indifference? Yeah, absolutely. When we're kind of forced into this position where we allow ourselves to fall into this position of, you know, thinking we have everything we need at our fingertips, God kind of just becomes an afterthought. You know, Cardinal mm-hmm. Seurat said, man no longer wishes to reflect on his relationship with God because he himself desires to become God. Mm. And so that's at the that's at the essence of what indifference is. It's just a failure to acknowledge the fact that 
there's an ultimate cause of our existence. But if we're going to define the term of spiritual indifference or religious indifference, I kind of use those two terms synonymously. I would say this. Religious indifference is the failure to think seriously about religion and the failure to give God his dues. There's two parts to this definition. One intellectual, one practical. The failure to think seriously about religion and the failure then to give God his due. When we think about the religious indifference that we have experienced in our own lives, maybe it was ourselves, like in my case, um, or maybe it's just other people that we're observing. We, we see that there's different degrees and forms of indifference. And so what I tried to do in the book is separate it really into three sections where I tackle three of the most common kinds of religious indifference out there. So the first one I talk about is what I call closed religious indifference, which is this extreme closed mindedness towards religion that we often see in skeptics, you know, atheists, agnostics, deists, uh, or, you know, people who maybe believe that there's some kind of a creator explanation, supernatural explanation for, exi- for the existence of the universe, but that it's not a personal creator. Those would be the closed indifference. And not every skeptic is a closed indifference. Some are genuinely seeking. Mm-hmm. But the idea of closed religious indifference is they think that religion is absolutely absurd because God doesn't exist. And so they don't even bother to enter the conversation. The second kind of indifference I talk about is open religious indifference. Open religious indifference, it expresses an extreme open open-mindedness towards religion. So whereas closed indifference is a sort of nothing-goes attitude, open indifference is a anything-goes attitude. And we see this, you know, sometimes in the New Age-type movements. Uh, we see this, I think you probably saw this a lot on campus, like I did, where people, they don't want to completely rule out Jesus as somebody who has something to teach them. It's the whole C.S. Lewis thing from mere Christianity. People want to see Jesus as a great you know, spiritual teacher, but they don't want to go farther than that. So they end up putting him on the same pedestal as Buddha or Allah or, you know, other divinities from other religions. But in fact, as as Christians, we know that Jesus made claims that that the others didn't. And then last of all, just in a nutshell, denominational indifference is indifference that exists within Christianity, but the differing denominations or people who belong to different denominations, Catholics included, just kind of brush off the fact that Christianity has been fractured and they don't bother to enter into that dialogue because they don't think it's important about improving Christian unity. So those are the three kinds I talk about. I love how these three are distinct and there's definitely differences because it's easy to interact with someone who just, you know, just whatever, anything goes, it's fine. But instead Mm. to realize that there's this complexity that different people fall into different categories of indifferentism and that really should shape our conversation with them because if they're open, then it's going to be a completely different conversation than if they're completely closed off to the existence of God. Totally. And I mean, it, it is important to find out where the person across the table from you is at because it can change day to day. Like I was a really wishy washy skeptic. You know, I fell away from my faith when I went off to university. But like on some days, I was like really close to just being a hard nosed atheist. Whereas other days, I was like defending Catholicism. If I heard, you know, some, I remember one time, you know, I, I played football for my, in university. So I remember we were on the bus coming back from a game once and I heard somebody on my team behind me talk about how Catholics worship a Pope. And then this was at a time when I like really wasn't even going to mass anymore. And I like turned around and made it, <laughs> defended Catholicism. I said, that's just not true. Yeah. Um, so 
Yeah, I was all over the map, but we got to know where we got to know where people are at if we're going to if we're going to effectively evangelize. Absolutely. When you're talking about the different types of indifferentism, it reminds me of Jennifer Fulweiler's story, who when she was young, she saw fossils and just thought like, gosh, is this it? Like, am I just going to end up as a if I'm lucky enough to end up as a fossil? Is this going to be the end? And I love how in her story, and I think this is true in a lot of people's stories when it comes to religious indifferentism, is those conversations about big questions like, who am I and you know why am I here? What is the purpose of life can be a really good starting point for them to come to a realization about the importance of religion. So why do those conversations about the big questions act as a really good starting point to talk about the truth of God and our faith with those who are in any of the categories of religious indifferentism? You know, human beings by nature wonder, okay, we're like in a, in a sense, you know, I, th- I believe it was Aristotle who said philosophy begins with wonder. Um, and so in a sense, all human beings, all rational, you know, creatures are by their nature philosophers. You know, if we want to yeah. say like philosophers with a small P, I guess we all just naturally desire to know. And we don't just desire to know this particular thing about the world in front of us or, or this particular truth about something, you know, in our immediately personal life. We desire to know answers to life's biggest questions. I mean, the atheist philosopher from Duke University, Alexander Rosenberg, calls life's big questions, life's persistent questions. And the reason why he says that is because like, he's admitting that there are these questions that follow us through generation after generation, as far back as we can see in history, this has been the case. And this is something St. John Paul II pointed out in his encyclical Fides et Ratio, where you know, he, he points out that in many, if not all, the sacred texts from different religions and different cultures, we see many of the same questions rising to the surface, kind of taking the forefront. So what this indicates is that human beings by nature desire to know the big questions, like what's the meaning of life? Who's responsible for my existence? Is there a life after death? You know, these are the big questions that we ask. So really, like, if a human being is not asking those questions, it's just because they need, it's just, it's not because those questions aren't there. It's just that they're sleeping. We got to wake those, that curiosity up. It's kind of like if someone's not eating, we don't just say, well, they're, you know, they, they've, they've made a decision. They don't want to eat. It's okay. They can decide what they want to do and that's fine. We'll leave it at that. No, we realize that the human nature is ordered towards eating. In fact, we need to eat in order to be well. Same thing with thinking and thinking about life's biggest questions. People, if they're not thinking about life's biggest questions, are in a sense not well. They're not intellectually well. So we need to try to wake them up to consider these things. Yeah, and so often when I brought these topics up in conversation, the response is like, "Well, gosh, I ne- you know, I've never thought about that, or I, you know, I never even thought to think about it that way or process it that way." And so a lot of times, like you mm-hmm. said, it's like this kind of nudge: you should be thinking about these things. These are important questions to wrestle with, and they get at the heart of who we are as humans, which is like you said, that desire to know. Talk about our experience on college campuses and university. One claim that I came up against during my time in college was a lot of people who either for different Protestant denominations or Catholic or lapsed Catholics would use the claim, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And that was something that I continued with a lot on campus. What's a good Catholic response to that claim when it comes to religious indifferentism? 
I would just start with why. You know, it seems very simple, but like here's here's the key. I think the tough thing about writing this book, okay, was that I I published it through Catholic Answers Press. Now I love Catholic Answers, and and you know I've been writing for their online magazine for quite a while. I've been partnered with them for for quite some time. But their mission is to provide apologetics and evangelization material, but like with a heavy emphasis on apologetics. And so like one of the, I think, misconceptions that could come from reading my book is that, and I think I try to like make this point in the book as well, but, Mm -hmm. but you know, my book is full of apologetics arguments. So the, the misconception that might come from that is like the, the solution to religious indifference is to use apologetics. And like, that's, the 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 fact is that's just an oversimplification what we need to do is show that we're not indifferent to where the indifferentist is at before they're willing then to let us challenge their indifference and so it all starts it starts with kind of the cliche things right we got to be ready to listen we got to ask the right questions and we got to not make them feel judged i guess in a way we got to earn the right to bring apologetics into the argument or into the into the conversation and there will be a time for that but yeah we just gotta we gotta hear them out find out their reasons then we have somewhere to start yeah absolutely i was talking to kathy duffy she recently wrote a new book on evangelization and we were talking about how often when you people come with these questions they don't really want someone to just hammer the answers down and this is why and we're so quick to come to a quick defense but in all reality, when it comes to apologetics, some of, you know, the most important thing that we can do is to listen. And so it's easy to come with now I'm armed with all these answers and I can take on any conversation. But really, if we, you know, if we're approaching it that way, we're missing the whole point of evangelization for sure. You know, most of the interviews that I've been doing about this book have really, really the focus has been on first steps. So we haven't really even gotten into the apologetics arguments, you know, to a huge depth because what people are really interested in is getting there like right that's the hard part that's the hard part is like getting to the point where you can actually use arguments and in a way that's not confrontational and that's going to actually compel the person to, to give some serious thought to what you're saying right just to be a kickstarter for their own thinking and processing afterward and it's like the, the yeah like, like the soul farming aspect like you're sometimes a, a lot of times i find you know you're just planting seeds you're planting seeds as you go along and someone may water them and you know someone may see the harvest but i'm um, being able to know that yeah you know god's working through you as a channel you don't have to have all the answers and just being able to, to be present with them and and see that person's humanity for sure. Getting into the apologetic side of this uh, from us from that <laughs> conversation. <laughs> so you mentioned this before in conversation. I want to dig into this a little bit deeper. Every religion, whether it's Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, they claim to have an affiliation with a founder, a prophet, a sage, whatever it may be. Can we talk about a little bit about what sets Catholicism apart? And what makes Jesus kind of tower over all of these different religions? That it's not just whatever. You talk about how the the spiritual indifferentism of denominational, like, you know, if you're a Protestant, that's that's fine. That's, you know, it's whatever. I'm a Catholic. That's my thing. What sets Catholicism apart from those? Yeah, I think the key is to start with Jesus. Um, and this is something that's important to recognize when it comes to doing apologetics in our modern age and dealing with those who have bought into this secular mindset is like apologetics only begin with arguments from God for God's existence, you know, but, but really like where the rubber meets the road is when we start to talk about Jesus Christ. Um, now, in order to really make a good case for the Catholic church, we need to first have solidified a good case for the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so 
how do we do that? Well, again, everything here here in this interview is sort of a, a nutshell version. But right. first, we need to look at what did Jesus claim about himself? You know, so so what did he claim? And there there are different places in the the text of the New Testament where we see Jesus making claims about himself, sometimes more explicit than others. Like most people are familiar with claim that he makes in John's gospel where he says, before Abraham was, I am. So, you know, uttering God's very name, but in reference to himself. So, you know, there's the more obvious passages of scripture where Jesus seems to be referring to himself. And, and in John's gospel, especially, this comes to us more explicitly. But, you know, somebody who's done some really good work on Jesus's claims about himself in all of the gospels, especially in the synoptic gospels, because it's, it's there where it's not quite as obvious is Dr. Brant Petrie. Now he, I think it was like two or three years ago, he came out a book, came out with a book called The Case for Jesus. And, um, in that book, what he showed is that the key to understanding Jesus's claims about himself is to understand that when he makes a claim about himself, that implies his divinity or oneness with God the Father, he's doing it in a very Jewish way. So like, for example, when he's in the boat with the apostles and he's sleeping and there's, you know, there's a couple accounts of this uh, in Mark's gospel and I believe in Luke's gospel where maybe in all three, I'm not, I'm not sure offhand, but the, there's a storm. The apostles are losing their minds. They wake up Jesus and then he calms the storm. And the apostle's reaction is, who is this that even the winds and the waters obey him? Now, what they're actually doing there is they're thinking back into the Psalms. Psalm 107, that actually describes, it's sort of like a plot summary of this very event in the New Testament. In Psalm 107, it talks about how there's men in a boat and they're full of fear, and then God comes and calms the storm. These are references then to God in the Old Testament, but not something that would immediately be apparent to someone who wasn't familiar with this. So I guess my point is, if we're going to see Jesus' claims about himself, clearly we need to understand in a sense what the things he says and does would have meant to a first century Jew. So that's the first thing I would say is that's how we come, number one, to see what Jesus is claiming about himself. And the way he seals the deal with his claim, the way he sort of confirms what he's claiming about himself is with his miracles. I mean, even even the ancient Jewish people admitted that Jesus was a miracle worker, except that, of course, they didn't want to recognize that he was the Messiah or else they'd be Christians. And so what they did is at, at the end of the day, just pin down his miracles to actually just being sorcery. I mean, Celsus, who was, I think, first or second century anti-Christian, he was like an anti-Christian apologist. He even admitted the miracles of Jesus, although, of course, he didn't believe that they were miracles either. He believed there was some other explanation for it. But the point is, Jesus goes down in history as a miracle worker, and his resurrection, above all, his signature, as it were, on his whole program. And if, if people want to read probably what I think is the best book out there for apologetics uh, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Read Michael Lacona's, and, uh, a book written by Michael Lacona and Gary Habermaster, two scholars out of the United States. They've written a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And that book, I, I don't think, can be beaten as far as an apologetics approach uh, to the resurrection. But, what, but once you realize um, this about Jesus, that not only did he claim to be God, but he gave us good reason to believe it, 
then we can look at whether or not he founded a church. And then when we see he did, we look at what are the features of that church and are there any churches today that have those features? And there we then have a case for Catholicism. Looking back to Christ's time on earth, it's easy to say, you know, like, oh, those who interacted with Christ when he was here on earth, they had this witness of miracles. They could sit down and talk with him. And for those of us living in our current era, and for those of us who are struggling with religious indifferentism or identify as an atheist, it can be easy to ask the question, you know, you know, if God's so good, then if Jesus is a miracle worker and that's kind of how he goes down in history, then why is it so hard for me to be able to find out the truth about him? Like, why doesn't God just make things easier for atheists to find him and for, in some ways, for us to point them to him? This is a problem that is often posed by skeptics that I tried to go into in some depth in the book to mm-hmm. just provide some some angles to look at the problem and show how we can respond to it. But ultimately, you know, we can take, there's, there's a number of approaches we can take. Like one that Blaise Pascal took, who is, who I think is probably the most profound writer on the problem of religious indifference from our modern times. Um, Dr. Peter Kreeft has called him more relevant today than he was, you know, 300 years ago when he wrote. Uh, but Blaise Pascal said that it's not that God hasn't revealed himself clear enough. If you're not seeing God, it means either that God has not yet chosen to reveal himself fully, or you're actually not seeking as intently and honestly as you think you are. And so I think like there's some truth to that. God wants to reveal himself. But God in his infinite wisdom also realizes that there are certain vulnerabilities that exist in certain times of our lives. There's certain openness that we have at one time that we don't have at another. God knows our whole life all at once. And so he knows when the best moment is for his revelation to come our way. And so what really matters, you know, sometimes we think like we're entitled to know the truth of things here and now. But what really matters, like God's outlook is really eternity, not just here and now in this time and space that's going to eventually come to end for all of us. What God wants, ultimately, is what happened with the good thief, the one who, at the last moment of his life, came to faith. So it's not like God wants us to come to faith at the last moment of our life, but in a sense, that's all that matters. I mean, we know as Catholics, we can we can walk the way of the good life, like our whole life. But like, let's say we take the last year of our life to take up serial murder or something. I mean, just to, just to use, just to use a really, uh, drastic example. Guess what? If you die a serial murderer who hasn't repented, it doesn't matter what you've done for most of your life. You're not going to end up in heaven because you've chosen to turn your back on Jesus Christ, the, the only savior. So what God is thinking in, as he sort of looks down on us and inter, interacts with us, and provides opportunities for us to see him and gives us graces. God is thinking about eternity. And so sometimes it's actually not the right time for him to be fully revealed in the way we desire. Now, that, I hope that's not too scandalous. You know, I think I'm a bit more articulate about that in the book. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. It goes back to that humility with evangelization. Ultimately, it's like this recognition that God's a good father and he's looking down on his children. And he knows what's best for them. And so sometimes even though we're like, yes, this is the perfect time, Lord, reveal yourself now. The reality is, is that, you know, he knows things better than we do. Um, and he knows that perfect time that for that person's life uh, to introduce himself and to reveal himself in a way 
um, that would kind of spur their hearts towards him. So no, I, I don't think it's scandalous at all. I think yeah. it's it's a great reminder for all of us who are called to evangelization. You know, ultimately, like God knows what is best for that person for sure. So as Catholics who are approaching conversation with those who are religiously indifferent, one of the functions of the Catholic Church that we have as Catholics to take advantage of is the fact that the, the church is spiritually equipping us as believers to become the best version of ourselves. And you talk about this in the book in depth and beautifully. It's so kind of like, again, from a nutshell, from a bird's eye view, how do the sacraments fit into this spiritual equipment for us as those called to evangelization? And how do the sacraments kind of offer this total package for someone who is striving towards sainthood? Yeah, man, that's such a good question. It really gets to the heart of why I wrote the book. You know, the, the purpose of writing just whatever uh, just that sounds a little goofy saying it that way, but the purpose of writing the book was really to guide people intellectually and hopefully through the head to the heart to the sacraments. I mean, that's where it's at, the sacraments, especially the uh, the source and summit of the Christian life, the Eucharist. Yeah. So what really this goes back to is what we talked about at the beginning of this interview. We talked about the fact that we're not self-sufficient. And, you know, it reminds me of the, the, the rich young man in the sense, uh, from, from Mark's gospel who was almost doing everything right. You know, he was following all the 10 commandments. And then when, when Jesus called him to kind of up his game and give, give away everything he had, give to the poor and come follow him, he, he wasn't quite ready to do that. Like there's sort of this attitude that the, the young man, portrays in that story of sort of like, I still am not ready to receive your grace. Like, I don't believe that you can help me do what you're asking me to do. And that's the key, I think, to the sacraments is understanding that the sacraments are this normative way that God has provided for us on earth, a way to receive the sacraments. I mean, God has given us these very tangible experiences through which we can come to have our intellect lightened, our will strengthened, and ultimately have more joy in our hearts despite anything that comes our way. So I think like the key to all this is grace. You know, it's like Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, we're saved by grace. So unless we're disposing ourselves to the fount of grace in the sacraments, we're really cutting ourselves short. And, you know, again, even for Catholics, you know, we're always looking for like this, like renewal of conversion, right? Conversion yeah. never ends in this life. So you think about like this problem of divine hiddenness and how as Catholics, like we're always wanting, I guess, in a sense, God to full, more fully reveal himself to us. But the question is like, we think maybe sometimes it's God that's holding back, but is it us? Like, are we going to confession regularly, cleaning our slate so that we can be more open to God's graces? Are we getting to Mass every Sunday like we're supposed to? And and if we have the time, are we getting to Mass maybe once or twice during the week? You know, doing what the saints did. These are all things that we, we need to ask ourselves because it's only through the graces of the sacraments that we can ultimately reach Christian perfection. Yeah, I love how you brought that back to the self-sufficiency, how the antidote in some ways to this world's obsession with self-sufficiency is this constant reminder that, you know, by myself, I'm, I can't do anything. You know, the gospel tells us, but with God, all things are possible and how the Catholic Church offers us these beautiful opportunities just to recognize our own humanness and just to be rejuvenated with the graces that come from the sacraments. And it's easier to think of the sacraments, you know, this is just something that I do. I'm going to check off my Sunday list. I went to mass without recognizing the beautiful depth of the grace that's offered there. Absolutely. 
Matt, to kind of sum up our conversation, if someone's listening and they're wondering what they can do to evangelize the indifferent, what are some tangible takeaways that you would want them to keep in mind the next time that they have a conversation with someone who's struggling with spiritual indifference? Yeah, so first of all, um, heed, heed St. Peter's uh, command in, in, his first, in his first epistle, um, always be prepared to give an account for the hope that is within you. Like, and the key word there is prepare. So make sure you're reading, you know, and if you're not a reader, become one. Like, or if you don't, if you, if you really want to resist that challenge, then at least get, you know, start listening to audiobooks, but start educating yourself. We have such a rich intellectual tradition and it really, um, I mean, it just really expands your world and, and I think brings more joy into your life if you start to, to see deeper into the realities that are around you and especially get to know God better. Um, so that would be the first thing is just prepare um, intellectually and practically to evangelize. Maybe maybe number two is identify some people in your life that you would like to focus your evangelization efforts on. Um, number three, I would say then start praying for them. Number four, start the conversation. Now, recognize apologetics aren't going to come into the conversation probably right away. They might. They might. That right. person might come come back right away looking for answers. But ultimately, be prepared to ask the question, why? Find out why they're at where they're at and recognize some, some solid starting points that you can focus on as you move towards giving arguments for why they should reconsider their position and maybe give more serious consideration to, to the Catholic faith. And other than that, I would say like just, just continue listening to the Catholic podcast and, and, <laughs> and, and just expose, expose yourself to all the great resources out there. Cause we really live in a fortunate time. You know, technology gives us so many blessings as well. And one of the, one of the great blessings is, is just the many, the countless great Catholic resources that are out there today. So yeah, that's what, that's what I'd say. Absolutely. Matt, speaking of great resources, where can our listeners pick up a copy of Just Whatever and where can they find your writing online? Yeah, well, I would just point them to the Catholic Answers store. I, just go to catholic.com and uh, you'll see uh, a link to the Catholic Answers store where you can find my book and, and many other books written by Catholic Answers uh, authors. And then uh, if, if you want to check out any of my other writings online, you can go to my personal website, reasonablecatholic.com, uh, or you can go to wordonfire.org, where I've been a contributor to the blog for, for a few years, and catholic.com, actually, Catholic Answers has an online magazine where you'll find quite a bit of my writing as well. So that's, that's probably where I'd start you. Awesome. Thanks so much. And well, listeners, we'll put these in the show notes so that you can find them easily on our website, cathpod.com. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show today. This was great, Chloe. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. And we'll close out the episode with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schoolfaith.org.